Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of For the Students. Today I talked to Dr. Retta Stanifer, who is an associate professor of, let's get this right, management and marketing. Retta teaches classes at North Central in areas such as human resource management, organizational behavior, leadership and team building, all that jazz. One of the coolest parts about talking to Retta is hearing her life trajectory, why she teaches the way that she teaches, how all of this kind of culminates together into her professional career. Retta has been a great resource for me to just bounce ideas off of, and hopefully vice versa, she gets some value out of uh, her relationship with me. We spent most of our conversation talking about things like performance. How do you as an instructor perform in front of students? Where should students look to start building their proverbial tool belt of skills that they're going to use in the workforce? And also, how do you manage the relationship between being an adult student or a returning student and what that looks like with other quote-unquote traditional type of students? I had a lot of fun talking with Retta, as I always do, so I hope you enjoy the pod. Right, so we get to sound like doofuses. Well, <laughs> you know, the funny part is that a lot of us talk for a living. Yeah, but not like this. But not like this, right? So the context changes, mm-hmm. and then we have to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. And then we start to rethink just our general approaches to it. Yeah. But what's also interesting is that most of us don't have a traditional ex- sort of training into teaching in the first place. That's true. So it's like, hey, you're a professor now. You have your PhD, or maybe you have a master's degree. Here's your class. Here's your class schedule. Yeah. Go for it. Go. Right. They dump you in the deep end of the pool. Is that what happened to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I say that having gone through traditional teacher training. Oh, no. We didn't have anything like so that. I Okay. So for my master's program at Illinois State, I had a fully immersive, you go in two weeks before the beginning of the term, you are taught basic pedagogy, which when you're a new master's student, you have no idea what that means. Right. You're taught how to actually evaluate speeches because that's what we do in our discipline. Mm-hmm. And then for the first semester, you observe somebody, a second-year grad student, teach. Oh, wow. Literally, you're there. You observe them teach in the morning, and then mm-hmm. you teach in the afternoon yourself. Hmm. And then that second semester, you go full by yourself. You don't watch somebody in the morning. So we have a very exhaustive learning process. Wow. Well, I think that's great. Which a lot of people, like, it sounds like you don't, you didn't have anything like that. No, I like was, that. you know, they said you're a graduate instructor. Here's your class. Pick a book. Best of luck to you. And that was it? Oh, yeah. Now, I had grown up with a teacher. Okay. My mom was a teacher. And I had performed hmm. before. So, I, you know, being up in front of people was not a problem. But... Yeah, no, it was it was just, you know, one day I walked in and I was the teacher. So. And you were, the, what, what age were you when that first happened? Not young. I mean, this was during my master's program. Okay. Yeah, and then, well, and then once I started the PhD, it was, you know, God, I don't remember how old I was when we, I started. We don't, we don't need to go down that Younger road. than I am now. That's fair. That way. I think that's how history works. That's right. But you talk about performance. Mm-hmm. You talk about the mom as a teacher. Oh, yeah. So you, I don't know, would you describe it as an advantage going into it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it, being in front of a class was not something that was, you know, 
like walking on Mars or something. It was right. it was a familiar scenario to me. So, but you know, it, it still is like a performance for me. Do you still feel that way? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When I walk in, it's it's performing. Now we're talking from day one all the way through last oh, yeah. day. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. To, to get the energy level up, you have to mm. be that that because if I don't. Then it's just, oh, you're going in to, to do a lecture or you're going in to talk about a case or you're going in to. And I, I, so I use the mindset of performance just to keep, make sure that I'm up and, mm-hmm. you know, the students aren't going to go to sleep on me. And I think a lot of people, so I think you're right, first of all, about the performative aspect of it. I think a lot of people would hear a word like performance and associate that with being disingenuous. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I mean, to me, if you're going to be a good performer, it has to be authentic. Okay. So, so where where's be... that line between you have this, Retta, you and I are, are talking. Mm-hmm. You're not, certainly there's some semblance of performance mm-hmm. of just you as, as humans. We're very performative creatures. Mm-hmm. But then there's the, okay, lecture, case study, going through mm-hmm. HR benefits and enrollment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure your students feel the same way. Mm. But then there's different iteration of it oh sure but it's it's hard for me to see the line i have to when i walk into the class i have to be up Mm. to you know and and it's my job to make sure that the material is relevant to them and meaningful and if it looks like it isn't to me then there's no way it's going to be meaningful or relevant to them so i have to be up i can't be You know, so that's what I'm thinking about. It's energy level more than anything else. I've had to tame that <laughs> over the years. And, and I think there are some instances where I come in too strong mm-hmm. or I come in too hot and the students are, I'll give you an example. Public speaking is everyone's probably most dreaded course. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of teaching public speaking, I would come in. And I would be high energy. It's going to be so great. This is a transformative experience for you. You should be so excited. <laughs> and I just see death on their faces. And they go, come on, man. You don't, have to, you don't have to lie to us. We know this is going to stink. But then I've actually tempered that a little bit. Oh, and I've okay. gone, okay, well, hey, this is public speaking. It's going to be enjoyable if you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be hard as heck. And I think making making changes to my performance of that has mm-hmm. allowed them to sort of calibrate their expectations of the course. Mm-hmm. Have you made those changes? I oh, mean, yeah. there's, there's this evolution, of course, over yeah. time from day one to year 10. Well, I find, you know, as, as I mature, <laughs> as I get older, yeah. then the, the, what I see as a good energy level changes a bit. You know, if I came in all hot, like, you know, know, that would just look stupid on me. Right. And so what I see as the appropriate energy level is going to be tied somewhat to my own self-image and and what I see as my goals for the class. And, um, you know, it it works for me, but but I think you make a good point in that it's not, it definitely can't be disingenuous. It has to be authentic. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about, you mentioned Mm self-image. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about, like, what is your identity? How do you present that identity 
how do you make sure that you're sort of on brand right. with what's authentic or true? Not anymore. When okay. I first started, it was a huge deal. As I got into it more and I started to feel more comfortable with it and, and sort of understood what works for me and what doesn't work for me, um, I didn't have to worry about that as much. It's almost like putting on a coat at this point. Sure. You know. So what works for you? I mean, what, what are the things that you sort of lean into as, as an educator, as a teacher? Tell stories. They love stories. And, and you I love think, stories. And I love stories. So everybody loves stories. But if you can, you know, if you can give real world examples, you know, not just, especially the course that I'm teaching right now is very theory oriented. And so it would be very easy to just, here's the, you know, here are the theories of motivation. Mm. You know, let's talk about McClellan's needs theory and let's talk about you know, ERG theory, and let's talk about equity theory. And But there's nothing connecting it to reality. It's a very ambiguous concept. And so I think it's really important that whenever we introduce theory that we step back and go, okay, so what does this theory actually mean to a manager? What does it mean to employees? If you want to be a good manager, how does this theory help you do that? Um if you just go through the theory and talk about the theory and step away from it, they don't. There's no connection there. It's it's just nebulous information going in one ear and out the other. Do you bun, do you bundle it that way? A if a if you're a manager, this is the value. If you're oh, yeah. an employee, this is the value. Well, I think it, and it can be similar between the two. Um, you know what's what's helpful to a manager can be helpful to an employee too, but I think. To the extent that you can give them a relevant premise and have them actually think through, you know, as, as, a, as for your management style, because everybody has a slightly different style, what is this theory going to mean to you? And we talk, you know, I talk about how, uh, especially for my leadership class, I'll talk about how, you know, when we start the class, um, I have them visualize a toolbox. And I'll say, you can make the toolbox anything you want. It can be an old wooden toolbox, or it can be a stainless steel toolbox, or it can be a futuristic toolbox, or whatever you want it to be. But it's primarily empty. And the job, my job, is to have, have, help you put tools in that toolbox mm-hmm. and, um, and let you practice some of the tools a little bit. Um, and some of the tools you're going to handle, and you're going to go, this is an awesome tool, and I could see using it a lot. And other tools, you'll go, well, yeah, I see the, I see what she's talking about, but I probably won't use this tool very much. And so over time, every person ends up with a toolbox that's indicative of their management style. But then I also talk about how, you know, at the end of the day, it's a box of tools. And the only reason, the only way this toolbox is going to become truly useful to you is if you're taking them out and using them. So class experience only goes so far. Sure. And they have to be out using them in the real world to actually gain that experience. I can't make somebody a leader in class. I, I wonder with that, we have very, very different student groups that would enroll in certain type of classes. So you have, mm-hmm. if you have the traditional college-age student, let's say, and the, and the traditional has been changing over time, and we know that, but let's say 18 to 24 years old. Versus, I'd imagine, some of the master's students, some of the business school students are probably older adults. Mm-hmm. They're working full-time. They're coming back to class at night to get their MBA or sure. master's in something. And they're 35-plus. Mm-hmm. 
when you're using that toolbox model and you say it could theoretically be proverbially empty, mm-hmm. when you look at the older students... They've right, got tools already. They've got tools already. So what challenges are there when you're saying, okay, we're going to craft a toolbox from, from the ground up. Mm-hmm. It's empty. We're going to figure out what works versus the second toolbox where the students have the tools and you go, well, maybe you've been using the hammer, proverbial hammer, wrong. Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, the uh, master students are coming in with a work experience. So that work experience varies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're definitely coming in with tools or at least with the preconceived notion of what those tools should be. And so you have to um, sometimes explain that, you know, in fact, they don't have that tool. They think they do, but Mm. they don't. Um, Or they think that everybody ought to have this tool and in truth not. So, for instance, there's, you know, when we talk about leadership in class, the the idea that a leader has to be charismatic. Mm. And it's like, no, not every leader is a charismatic person. Not everybody's Robin Williams. Not everybody is, you know, this really out there kind of person. And um, some really, really effective leaders are introverts. And it really depends on the context of the organization and the culture. And it depends on who they're leading, who who the employees are, and what their expectations are. It depends on the industry they're in. Um, But at the end of the day, this idea that everybody has to have a certain tool is not necessarily true. And everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses. So you work to your strengths and try to develop past your weaknesses if you can. If you're smart, you surround yourself with people who are good at stuff you're not good at. Right. Um, but there, the to get back to the, to the toolbox, you know, master students do come in with a more, a, f- a fuller toolbox, let's say. But they haven't necessarily used the tools, or they don't see the connections between the tools. Um, you know, they have a screwdriver and they have a hammer, but they don't really see how the screwdriver and the hammer work together. I'd imagine I've, I've dealt with students this way who are very self-assured that the way that they've done it is the right oh, way yeah. to do it. Mm-hmm. So, Retta, walk me through that conversation. when you, ha- <laughs> And it's a difficult conversation because I've had it. Where you go, you know, I, I understand that that's the way that you do it, and maybe that's the way that you've always done it, and that's the way that you've been taught how to do it, but it might not be the best way to do it. Right. And you were to say what to that? How do you how do you broach that? Well, you know, it's actually interesting. Most students, I, that's it's rare to get a student who's that dead set hmm. in their experiences. It it always it always cracks me up when I hear people talk about the yelling. And then moving past. I grew up in a very loud, yeah, yelly <laughs> family. Yeah. So, when, and, and also growing up in sports and having coaches yell and having teammates yell. And then yeah, you have a, a job or an objective at hand and you have to go through with it regardless of how upset or hot tempered you were. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, people look at that approach to handling conflict as potentially destructive. And it can be. But I wonder how you talk about using that instance of, of anger and frustration oh, yeah. and making it productive. Uh, we actually talk about that. I mean, when we talk about conflict in class, um, 
we talk about the fact that there is such a thing as functional conflict. There can be, you know, there's functional conflict and dysfunctional conflict. So what makes one successful and what makes one not successful? And the primary thing that, that tends to cross that line into dysfunctionality is when it stops being about the issue and starts being about the person when it becomes personal. Hmm. So I can, you know, they can have arguments over how fast to play a song or, you know, going back to the Stones um, or who needs to be louder here or who needs to, to be the, the main vocal on this or whatever. And as long as it's about the issue, you can have some vigorous debate and people still are okay with that. They're comfortable with that and they can get over it pretty quickly. When it stops becoming your idea, I, I could see differences in your idea. I don't like your idea. Um, and it starts becoming, I don't like you. Hmm. That's when it crosses the line. And that's when it starts to become dysfunctional and it happens quickly. So one of the things we talk about as managers is you've got to really be on point and be listening. You obviously have the expertise and the degrees and the credentials and the work experience to do the job that you do. Mm -hmm. At some point, did you have this moment where you go, well, I can teach people this. Because it seems as though you, along the way, you talk about listening. You talk about effective communication. You talk about moving from destructive communication to functional ways of actually working with it. And that just seems to be so innate to the way that you think and the way that your brain is programmed. That's just experience. Okay. That, that's doing it over and over and over again and figuring out what I did wrong. Um, you know, and I still get it wrong every now and then. And it can... I have I've had to learn that this is something I still have to work on is is um, every class is going to have its own vibe so I could be teaching two sections of the same course and have one section that's just clicking and the students and I get along really great and we have you know we laugh and have a good time and we're able to go through stuff and get really good experience and students are real open and asking questions and answering questions and things and I can teach that same way, that same material to the other section, and it just doesn't click. And so you have to constantly be trying to figure out how do I reach this particular group of people. That's something I still have to work on. But a, but some of it is just I've done it long enough that it you know I I don't have I don't feel as worried about it anymore. There was was it Lily Tomlin that said. Being, was it feel, being an expert is feeling like no one's discovered you so far yeah. <laughs> or discovered you out so far. Um, so there's always a feeling of you're kind of putting on a little bit to people. You know, you put your face on and, you know, no, I'm the expert. <laughs> okay. Um, it's still hard to hear that and think, yeah, right, I'm the expert. But it's it gets easier over time with experience and you've learned what you're good at and what you're not. You've, you had to have had, though, some sort of moment or series of moments that, that convinced you. And, I, and I, this is sort of a fundamental belief that I have, is that you have to be either some part narcissistic <laughs> or a little crazy to think that you can take that knowledge, that work experience, 
put it into the form of a traditional classroom setting or even a workshop or mm -hmm. even a training and development session at work mm -hmm. and be the facilitator, be the educator, be the person who's leading the charge. And for me, I don't know that I had one monumental moment where it clicked and I went, oh, okay, I can do this professionally. But I had a couple of moments leading up to it. What was your moment or moments where you thought, okay, you know, I, I can do this? Early on, um, you'll have moments, and you know, I still get this, and it's it's sort of like the unicorn moment of, of teaching, but you'll you'll be talking about something, or you'll be doing an activity with students, or you know, you'll make a point that you're trying to get across to the students, and you look at a student, and you see the light go on. You know, there's just something on their face that they get it, and they get excited about it. And that moment makes you go, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is, you know, maybe I am able to reach students this way. And it doesn't happen all the time, and it's, it's something you kind of strive for, but you never know if it's going to happen or not. Uh, but when it does happen, it's super cool. And, and sometimes I, f I feel as though that becomes detrimental in some ways. If I get that initial reaction out of a student, like day one, five minutes in, and I have the class laughing, I almost feel like I'm setting myself up for failure mm. because I feel like I've lucked into it sometimes. Well, you do luck into it sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's just... You know, it's not any, I, I, that would be narcissistic of me to think that every single moment that I've managed to get was purely my design. Sometimes it's just luck. Um, you know, the student was in the right frame of mind that day to hear what you had to say. Um, but I think when it happens frequently enough, then you can start going, okay, maybe I am halfway decent at this. Maybe it is something I can do. And, and I still, you know, even today, there, when I look through the material that I've got to cover in any given course, I know that there's material that I really shine on mm. that I'm personally interested in because of my research or because it's just stuff that's interesting to me to talk about. And there's stuff that, you know, it's like the broccoli of the course. It's, it's the stuff that you really need. The students have to hear it. The students need to hear it. And there's a reason why you cover it. But it's not going to be the most exciting material. And that's the one you really have to work. You know, that's, that's where you, you really are putting on your tap shoes and, and dancing a little bit to make sure that, that, that it gets across to people. I love broccoli, Retta. I don't know what... I like broccoli with cheese on it. Okay, so <laughs> your job is to be the cheese. That's right. There you go. I, my, my, I'm the cheese of the, of the, of the dish. I, I wonder, too, because we... I like that there are some topic areas, and we, and we know what they are, mm -hmm. where we just naturally care about it, and by product of that is that the students will care about it, too, because they see our excitement, they see our engagement with it. Mm -hmm. There are moments... And it's not necessarily bound by topic area. It could just be bound by things like self-doubt, where we have obstacles to overcome professionally, personally, in the classroom, out of the classroom. And mm -hmm. sometimes those worlds are intertwined and we can't, we can't break it. I wonder what are some of those challenging moments or some of those obstacles that you face, either on a daily basis, weekly basis, things that you have to kind of push through just to get the job done? Um, some of that happens inside the classroom. Some of it happens outside. Yeah. 
you know, there's a certain amount of prep that, and this is actually something that I talk to the students about because they hear, they hear the phrase a lot these days to find something you're passionate about to be your work. And I've had students say, that seems like kind of a cliche. And how, you know, most people aren't doing what they're passionate about. So why is it that we're hearing, find your passion? You know, and I said, well, it's kind of, your job is, your work is kind of like a marriage in that you could be married to the greatest person in the world. And, you know, I'm married to my best friend. I'm happy in my marriage. I'm thrilled with who I'm married to and we have a great marriage. Does that mean that you're going to be blissfully happy every second of every day? No, it doesn't. And jobs are the same way. Even work that you find interesting and engaging, there's going to be aspects of that work that is boring or is tedious or is uh, time-consuming or isn't exactly what you want to be doing at that moment. But it's the overall essence of what you do that makes it worthwhile. So yeah, there's stuff that I have to do as part of my job that may not be the most exciting thing I've ever done, but um, I realize that it's it's part and parcel. It's, it's what gets me to the point that I do find worthwhile and interesting and engaging. So so what are those pain points? For some people, it's it's lesson planning. For some people, it's grading. Grading is a is a hoot. Yeah, grading is definitely one of those items that you go, man. I wish there was something else I could be doing. What right was now. I thinking when I assigned that to exactly. them? Exactly. Why would I make Why? it ten pages? Yeah, I could have made it eight. Can I say a word that I know will upset you? Yeah, sure. Jumbo. Uh, yeah. So we have we have these large. <laughs> not night, for much longer. Not for much longer, but we'll still have some sort of iteration of it Mm -hmm. where there are these large night classes Mm -hmm. which sort of by virtue of of your industry and what you do a lot of the graduate work has to be night classes because you have working professionals who are Mm -hmm. coming back to school at night so that's almost inescapable actually we're most a lot of our master's programs are moving online so walk me through that transitional period for you not necessarily as somebody who is facilitating the online learning, mm-hmm. but who is having to think about what works right now in your typical classroom setting mm-hmm. and maybe even some of the worries or concerns that you have porting all that stuff online. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's a challenge. I've done online teaching before, but it's been a while since I did it. So I'm going back now and relearning a little bit what I need to do to make it worthwhile. You still got similar goals. Like you still want to engage the students, whether you're in a classroom or online. You still want the material to come across as relevant and practical um, and meaningful to students, so that doesn't change. But the effort, at least to me, it seems like the effort it takes to get it there is challenging online because of the nature of, online teaching. I mean, you're not sitting directly in front of the person. You're not uh, getting that immediacy. In a lot of these conversations when we talk about making online learning accessible, we talk about making online learning engaging, which is a word that you use, which I think is a very, very important consideration because we want to have as fulfilling and enriching an experience face-to-face, hybrid, blended, online as possible. It's harder to perform online 
You just, you, you don't get the immediacy that you do in a classroom. You, you know, it's harder to see that light come on because they're not sitting there with you. You're not looking them in the face when it's happening. Um, and so it can be intimidating. You, you want to make sure that the objectives of the course are still met. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that the experience that the students are having is still good. Um, but there's a little bit of doubt as to, um, you know, am I capable of doing that? We just don't know what the relationship will look like moving forward with content creators being the educators and the students who are consuming it. Because we know a lot of things about how people consume media in the first place. We know that people are more likely to watch a four and a half minute long video than eight minute long video. Right. But if they start going down the chain of watching one four-minute video, they'll go for another four-minute long video, and they'll go for the third, mm-hmm. maybe the fourth one. I mean, it's the YouTube binging. Right. But we have people who are very accustomed to two-hour lecture because that's the way that it's always been done, and that's the density of the material, and we're just going to try to replicate it online. And that model, for the most part, is sort of unproven and doesn't work. And so I, sometimes I think that we get so intimidated by the online experience that we forget the online experience is the facilitation between teacher and student. The student themselves can go out, right? can exist in the universe, can exist in the world. Right. There's some self-discovery that needs to happen. Sure. And my, and my curiosity becomes how do we encourage that? How do we tap into it? Because in, in a face-to-face setting, we think of, of exercises and activities like that all the time. Go to Boiler House, sit in a corner, Watch people coming in. How do they interact? And we would think of that easy peasy. But then when we move online, we go, well, what does an activity look like? No, just send them out. Yeah. Tell them to go get a coffee. Tell them to, you know, go grab a salad somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we try to overcomplicate the process because the, the actual channel that the thing is being facilitated on is different. Yeah. That we lose sight of. I think we get so enamored with the technology that we forget that the technology is a tool. It's a tool. And it doesn't have to be the be-all, end-all of how they engage the material, how they engage with each other, how they engage with the faculty. So um, while I'm all for using different technology Mm. and trying to use as many different things as I can to make the class engaging, at the end of the day, they're tools. And I'm not going to use something just so I can say I used it. If unless it actually serves a purpose pedagogically, it's it's not useful to me. I think that you are hitting everything at the same time in such profound way that people are overlooking. Number one, that it's just a tool. Mm-hmm. It's just a thing. It's a vehicle that facilitates the interaction. But also from a very fundamental level, what, what's the value add? I mean, what are we really getting out of having students record a video mm-hmm. versus having students write a reflection paper or an exit ticket? And that's not to favor or privilege one of those tools over the other. It's just to think, what do, honestly, what do I want my student to do, to think, to feel at the end of this? And if video makes sense, then we could do video. Mm-hmm. In my case, during the during the uh, polar vortex, the winter vortex that we had, mm. we we lost a handful of class days. Right. And one of the big components in my classes is interacting and, and talking and speaking with each other. And so I literally just had them go into these online groups that I facilitated 
and just record themselves for a minute talking about a thing and trying to, as close as I could, replicate what was happening in a class and what we would have been doing in the classroom setting. Because I thought that was neat. And then I thought, well, what's the difference between them taking their phone, recording a selfie, submitting it to their peers, versus them writing some sort of two, three-paragraph response. Oh, sure. I, I think it it goes back to what the learning objective is. Hmm. You have to know, you know, um, one of the things we're doing in this online training we're talking about um, is the is learning what order to, to approach things when you're trying to develop a course. And you really have to have, you, you have to have wrapped your head around what the learning objectives are. What is it you want the students to get out of it before you start trying to figure out what to put together? Uh, I think sometimes we put the cart before the horse and we get uh, so, you know, we're so used to coming up with lesson plans and, and coming up with the material needs to be presented in such and such a way. But I think it helps to go backward a bit to the essence of, okay, but what is it you're trying to get to with this material what what are the basic foundational learning objectives that's going to make this material useful Mm. to them Um, and so I think the the learning objectives should drive the tool not the other way around an interesting thought exercise and this is something that we should do is revisit this conversation after we've facilitated the online classes that we're designing right did we do it did we actually <laughs> adhere to the things that we said we were going to we do? We sound brilliant right now, but did we actually do it? And the answer might be might be maybe. I, I suspect it's going to be sometimes. And I think there's not I don't think there's anything wrong with sometimes. No. That's how you learn. But I think we also are are so enamored by the idea that we want to just get it right. Well, yeah. I mean, you always want to make sure that the class is perfect for everybody and that's not realistic. That's, you know, that's hopeful. Yeah. Well, we're going to get it on the books then. Yeah. We're going to get a a next conversation on the (laughs) books where we get to revisit in hindsight and say, did we do? Did it happen? Did it happen? Did it happen as we anticipated? Is it something that we're happy with? Are we proud of it? Yeah. Invariably, there's going to be things that happened exactly the way we thought they would. And there's going to be things that that we that we came up with and thought this is going to be awesome and it wasn't mm-hmm. and there's going to be things that we go yeah this i think this will work this will be okay and then it's awesome so that's just the nature of the beast i think that we need to embrace the awesome well yeah as much as possible as much as possible all right Retta, thank you yeah you're welcome All right. Thanks for making it all the way through the podcast. I appreciate the continued support. Retta was a great support about all of it. And I hope that you learned as much as I did from our conversation. See you next episode.